Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, public health, crime, and the economy are the top three issues concerning Metro Atlanta residents. That's all according to a recent survey from the Atlanta Regional Commission. It's called Metro Atlanta Speaks, and the annual survey since 2013, but of course this year is like no other. We really wanted to focus on the pandemic, focus on our residents' issues and anxieties in dealing with life in the pandemic. That conversation with Mike Carnathan from the Atlanta Regional Commission is coming up in just a moment. But first, this Democratic presidential electors convened at the state capitol today to solidify Vice President-elect Joe Biden's win in Georgia. While voters, yes, cast their ballots more than a month ago, the Electoral College vote, which is taking place nationally today, is actually the final step in the process. Georgia's 16 electors included former candidate for Governor Stacey Abrams and the longest-serving member of the General General Assembly, Representative Calvin Smyrie. Meanwhile, election season isn't over in Georgia, as you all know. Today begins early in-person voting for the state's January 5th U.S. Senate runoff elections. So far, 1.2 million mail-in ballots have been requested and 200,000 have been returned. In other news, due to the coronavirus pandemic starting this week, three suburban Atlanta high schools are switching to all virtual learning until January. Now, letters were sent to Cherokee County parents of students attending River Ridge, Sequoia and Woodstock high schools. Why the shift? Well, there's been an increase in COVID-19 positive cases at the schools and statewide since the Thanksgiving holiday. Health experts warn another spike could happen after the new year. That being the case, at the time of this broadcast, 476,044 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. 37,637 have been hospitalized, and of those, 6,854, well, consider ICU admissions. Since March here in Georgia, the state has recorded 9,205 deaths. As always, this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. But there is some health news experts say is promising. A select number of health care workers will become the first Americans to receive the COVID-19 vaccine today. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved emergency authorization of the Pfizer vaccine over the weekend. Vials have been sent out to distribution sites throughout the U.S. already. Experts note it will be a while before non-essential workers have access to the vaccine, likely spring or summer. And finally, the Atlanta and Spelman College community is remembering the life of Dr. Jane Smith. Dr. Smith was a Spelman College alumna, educator, and champion for equity as relates to women's leadership roles, and also a mentor to so many. 
Dr. Smith died this past Saturday. In a statement, Spelman College officials say details regarding his service and arrangements are pending. But also from Spelman College President Dr. Mary Schmidt-Campbell, she says, quote, true to her philosophy of servant leadership, Jane leaves us with the comfort of her own words. She shared several weeks ago that her God-given mission in life was to confront and overcome challenges. That mission, she said, had been fulfilled. We thank God for the witness of her life and for those parting words that encourage each of us. Close quote. And I've had many conversations in the past with Dr. Jane Smith and was always accommodating to do interviews, not only for Closer Look, but also when I was in the WABE newsroom. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Back in November, of course, on the national stage, when U.S. voters made history electing Kamala Harris as the first black and South Asian American woman as vice president of the U.S., so did voters right here in Georgia. They did something historic. The city of Clarkston, known as the most diverse square mile in America, made history when Beverly Burks was elected mayor. She's the city's first black mayor and first woman. Burks was sworn into office as mayor on November 30th at the Clarkston Community Center. So you know what that means? She joins me now. Clarkston Mayor Beverly Burks. Madam Mayor, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. You know, you've been a resident of Clarkston for how long now? 20 years now. About 20 years. What is it about this city that you love and that drew you to the community in the first place? Well, initially when I moved to Clarkston, it was the fact that it was so close to 285 and the airport that drew me. Um, But then I became a caregiver for my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And um, as being a caregiver, one day the power went out. And so I had to learn about my city. Right. And when I learned about my city, I loved my city. Mm -hmm. And so that passion that I have for my city continues to this day. The diversity, everything related to it. How would you describe city of Clarkston to someone who may have never even heard of the city of Clarkston? What would you tell them about it? Well, again, I would say that Clarkston is the most diverse city in a 1.5 square mile radius. We have over, we have people from over 50 different countries and six continents, Um, but it is an inviting place. It is a welcoming place. It is a place where possibilities can grow. And it's a place where if you want to see true diversity, that's where you need to come. Has politics always been sort of this internal thread for you? How'd you get into it? I know you served on the city council some years back. (laughs) Okay. Yes. No, no. If you would have said to me 10, 15 years ago that I would even have been mayor, a councilwoman, but let alone mayor, I would have said no. That was never my ambition. That was never my hope. But I've always had a servant spirit. And so with that, I've always taken opportunities to be in leadership roles. And so it kind of was a good match for me. So then why the decision after just spending a few years on city council then to run for mayor? Not once, but twice. Yeah. Not (laughs) once, but twice. (laughs) Twice. Twice. Well, when I decided to run for city council the first time, it was, I thought our council needed a different leadership style. Mm -hmm. And so um, I didn't win. 
And sometimes those are unanswered prayers, as I like to say, um, to give me an opportunity to grow, um, to give me an opportunity to go through some healing because I had some um, health issues at that time to, to happen. Um, but I never stopped working in my community mm -hmm. and I never stopped doing the things that I said were passionate for me towards my community. And so when the second opportunity came up, um, the former mayor decided to run for commissioner. Mm -hmm. um, I said, well, okay, let me run for the position. And I appreciated the support that I received from the community to allow me this opportunity to be in the position. When you were on city council, what did you learn from that experience? And do you think it's going to be helpful now as mayor? Me to have been on city council, I understand the importance of the relationship with the mayor and the council. So for Clarkston, we have a council manager form of government. Mm -hmm. And so instead of a strong mayor form of government. Um, however, um, as the mayor, I still have that leadership role. And so what's important is to ensure that we have good communication, that we stay on task, that we ensure that we do the vision and do the things that we need to make our city grow and progress. Well, let's talk about your leadership style. How would you describe it? What are those qualities and characteristics you think make for a great leader? Making sure that you listen, um, making sure that you, um, I'm very humbled by my role, um, making sure that I uplift people. And so I believe in making sure that from a team perspective, what can I do to grow the team? What can I do to make my team a better team? Because by doing so, it makes whatever we're trying to do better, greater. Mm -hmm. And so um, how can I make sure we stay on task, but also making sure that I empower people that's very important for me is that if you have ideas, I want you to take those ideas and grow those ideas um, and I can help you along the way to do it. We all know, and you just talked about it a while ago in terms of the uniqueness of Clarkston, home to so many immigrants, home to refugees, home to so many different diverse populations, which requires maybe a different set of resources and initiatives for your community. Have you come up with a strategic plan or a priority list that you want to implement? And I know it's early because you, you just were sworn in, but... Well, to your point, and the other tricky thing is I, this is only for a year. So mm -hmm. I have to turn around next year and mm -hmm. run again. Um, but making sure we do things in terms of... Uh, one of the things we did recently was join the we're going to apply to join the AARP livable community, right? And so being a part of the livable community is not just for seniors, but making sure that as we look at our comprehensive plan, how are we making Clarkston a place that's livable for someone who was born in Clarkston, who then eventually transitioned? So that's important for me to make sure that we make our city a livable city, um, making sure that we look at job creation and economic development. Because as you know, with COVID, that is something that is very important. So many industries and so many um, different type of, of businesses have either shut down or they've slowed down. Mm -hmm. And so that's impacted a lot of our community because some of those positions are no longer available for them. So looking at how we can do some job creation, economic development on that front. And then the other piece in terms of transportation, we have a wonderful path that goes from all the way to Stone Mountain through the 
through to, 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 to cater. Mm-hmm. And so with that, it's how do we encourage pedestrians um, and cyclists to utilize that? And that is a draw to have people to actually come into our city and see more about our city. In terms of square miles, I mean, the city of Clarkston is not that big. When you talk about economic development, you're talking about already building upon what's existing within the city. Are you open? Do you want more new development to come in that might disrupt either some of your green space or disrupt some of your residents? You know, that's been a that's been a problem in the past. It has been a problem in the past, but it's the balance. And so that balance between helping those existing businesses thrive and grow. I mean, that's what we need to make sure we give them the opportunities to be able to grow. Um, encouraging the balance because we also have an industrial park Mm -hmm. that is part of our city. So encouraging those types of businesses that will be able to utilize that area is also good as well. So is that balance between how can we make our existing businesses thrive and encourage some businesses to come into our city that can also help in terms of economic development. So that in terms of the future, let's look at the now, which of course is the pandemic. How are you all responding during this time for your citizens? Well, thankfully, we were able to receive some of the CARES Act funding. And so we were able to get $1.4 million. And we've utilized a lot of that funds for our residents to do rental assistance, utility assistance. Um, We used it for our employees in terms of Um, hazard pay to make sure those things that they needed, especially if they're out in the community, to make sure that they are being cared for as well. Um, Looking at how we can work with some of our um, internal infrastructure to make some necessary changes so that we can be make sure that we can handle the fact of COVID and contactlessness and touchlessness. Mm -hmm. And so looking at all those things. So those are the things that we've done in terms of funding. I'm on the COVID, Clarkson COVID Task Force. And um, one of the projects that I coordinated was mass distribution. So we went through all the apartment complexes and provided free masks to the residents. And we're going to make sure in terms of the winter, spring, and um, summer to provide additional masks for our communities. You all have testing sites in Clarkston? We do. We do. We have, um, we actually, Etni Health provides testing. Um, We make sure in terms of flu vaccinations, um, Clarkston Health Center is also doing flu vaccinations as well. So we are encouraging people to make sure if they need to get a test, that they have access to testing, but also to do preventative measures, such as making sure that they also get their flu shots as well. And to your knowledge, Madam Mayor, do you have any idea of of numbers in terms of those who have tested positive for the virus? Sadly, if there have been any deaths within your community or administration? I don't don't have the numbers offhand, Mm -hmm. but um, the numbers are a little higher than average um, Mm -hmm. because we have to go through an education process, you know, um, making sure that people understand where how the importance of wearing a mask, um, the importance of not having small or large gatherings, um, just to make sure that people understand that this virus is not over. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of us are kind of uh, COVID tired of you know not being able to meet people, not being able to do different things with people, but. Um, we still have to make sure until we get this under control that we adhere to those guidelines. 
And how helpful has DeKalb County been and CEO Thurman? How helpful have they been in with you? And, and again, you just came on board. So <laughs> it's been like a week, well, actually, two weeks. It's been like a week. Um, and the funny <laughs> thing is, I was on the mayor. I was on the um, DeKalb Municipal Association call last night and Michael Thurman was on the call as well. So um, I can say throughout this time, they have been extremely helpful in terms of resources we've had a couple of collaborations where we've done some food drives and so that has been a great thing for us um again in terms of the funding you know we thank the commissioners for voting to allow us to have that funding so we appreciate that so i would say i love the fact that we are one to cap and so when it when we needed to come together we came together as mentioned this is a very short term Right now, you are going to run again? I hope so. Yes, I do. I do. I do. And and Madam Mayor, if you will, how are you doing? You were dealing with medical condition and... I want to respect I, that, but I want to also that's just know okay. how you're doing. No, I told you. I told you. I actually had breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So September last year, I found out that I had breast cancer um, and I am cancer free. So it has been a whirlwind but you know it has given me the opportunity to educate uh, others about the importance of health equity um, making sure that you are proactive in terms of of finding and taking care of yourself because that's how i found out i found out myself i did a self-examination and that's how i found my lump Mm -hmm. and um, making sure that whatever we can do to help our community we do you know i i I remember sitting at some of my uh, appointments and thinking how difficult it would be for somebody who particularly was on an hourly wage to be able to take off that time go to their chemo sessions go get all those scans still have to take care of their kids and then manage doing all of that and work Mm -hmm. right And so those are those adversities that many of our communities and particularly my community, you know, and I work with I I work with people in my community who are going through the same thing or have gone through the same thing to understand that there is support there. There are resources and that they need to be an advocate for their health. So, like I said, I went from September finding it out and went through my chemo sessions, you know, went through all my surgeries, rang the bell in October, won the election in November, got sworn in on my birthday. You know, it just, <laughs> it's just been a blessing. And that's how I look at it. Every day is a blessing. And I don't, I don't discount it. I see opportunities and I see the joy because when you go through something like that, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It is how you deal with those situations that's critical. And so I took it as an opportunity to have joy and to be thankful for my life. As we wrap up, how will you communicate with citizens, with your residents? We have still have this pandemic, so town mm-hmm. hall meetings may not be wise. But how will you communicate with the community? And what are you hearing so far from them? Well... Well, I'm, I'm here and thank you for winning. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, and a couple of things that I plan to do. So I'm actually going to get ready to do a summary of our council meetings and then have those um, summaries in terms of just giving the highlights of the meetings. I'm going to translate those meetings 
and have them at least start off being translated in about five to six different languages. Um, I'm going to try to make sure that we do listening sessions because I don't know all the answers and I don't know all the issues and problems that our community is facing right now. So I have to be humble enough to say, what are some of your concerns and take this opportunity, whether it's a Zoom, whether even though we're in this cold weather, you know, maybe we have to do something creative outside, you know, where we space out mm -hmm. and we have those conversations, but really take that opportunity to listen and, and hear what the general ideas are from my community. So making sure that, you know, communicating, um, making sure that I take opportunities to translate where I can um, and doing those different things to be involved and engaged as much as possible. City of Clarkston Mayor Beverly Burks. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for taking the time. Also, best of luck to you. We're glad to hear that you are cancer-free. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rose, and thank you for again, again for this opportunity. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. How many times have you heard me say this? It's been quite a year. Chaos. <laughs> it's just everything that happened from politics to just the uh, coronavirus to society. It's just nobody expected it. Everything happened at the same time. Nobody was prepared for anything. It was just craziness. Revelation, because it revealed a lot of things. Um, everybody was put in the same situation and had to deal with a lot of things. It revealed a lot of things about how our government was caring for us. Um, just a lot of things were revealed. shocking. Uh, just so many things have happened that I don't think anyone could plan for or expect or even imagine in their wildest dreams. And it, it's all happened this year. Chaotic, anxious, but at the same time there is hope. So it was hope is the word that I would look for. Uh, we 
asked you all to describe this year in one word, and you didn't disappoint. Voices from around the Atlanta area. And now a new study also provides some insight into how Metro Atlanta residents are feeling and their top concerns after this year. It's called Metro Atlanta Speaks. And joining me now to discuss this is Mike Carnathan, Senior Manager of Research and Analytics for our good friends over at the Atlanta Regional Commission, or as we plain folks say, the ARC. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Rose. You know what? Y'all love to ask questions just like me. You're right. You're right. Let me ask you this, then. How would you sum up this year? A different. That's it? Um, <laughs> unprecedented. Um, there's so many words that we can use <laughs> to describe this year. Um, I I'd, 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 could probably write a book. Mm-hmm. Probably many people are writing a book about how different this year is. Because of this pandemic and, and this extraordinary year and different years, you put it, have you all had to shift in some of your initiatives or surveys or studies that you all wanted to do because of the pandemic? Well, abs- yeah, absolutely, Rose. Everything that we were planning on doing in 2020 sort of got tossed out the window. And one example of that, and one why you have me here, is is our Metro Atlanta Speak survey. You know, we've been asking that survey um, every single year since 2013. And there's usually about 10 to 12 questions that are kind of held over each year so we can start understanding that time series of how perceptions of life in Metro Atlanta are changing. And then we got to 2020 and then, well, you know, obviously everything's different. And so Metro Atlanta Speaks reflected that. We really wanted to focus on the pandemic Uh, focus on our residents' issues and anxieties in dealing with life in the pandemic. And all of this is with the hope that, you know, maybe we can provide some information about what we can begin to think about um, post-pandemic life. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, we're not there yet, but we're getting there and understanding our residents' anxieties and getting there, I think, is, is, is critical information for our decision makers to have. So with you all releasing this survey every year, which actually started in 2013, correct? Yes, yes, ma'am. So with these surveys that you all do every year, what do with that? And who gets to read these surveys? What benefit does it serve to the community? I mean, I always say the highest and best use of, of, of this data are the conversations we have, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, we love coming on your show, Rose, because we want to spark conversation out in the community. We've given, you know, several, you know, ARC gave a webinar about this. I've given several presentations out in the community, well, out in the community, virtually in the community about this. And, and so that's how we use it. We want to spark conversation. We want to get people talking because the only way that we're going to come out um, on the other side of this pandemic in a better place is if we start developing kind of a common understanding of our issues and anxieties. And that's exactly why we pivoted Metro Atlanta Speaks to focus on the pandemic issue. Well, let's talk about how you all gathered this data. You partnered with Kennesaw State University for the survey in, in what, about 10 counties, correct? 10 or 13? It's, it's 10 counties plus the city of Atlanta. So the survey's massive. So it has 
4,400 respondents, which gives us the ability to have statistical significance for each of those 11 jurisdictions, so the 10 county and city of Atlanta. The demographics of your survey, they match the demographics of these counties? Absolutely. So whenever we do a survey like this, we, you know, we make sure that we weight it properly. Um, and since the survey sample is so big, we actually have statistical significance for a number of other demographic cuts, like race and ethnicity, like <laughs> income, like education. And so, you know, we can, and, and the margin of error region-wide is plus or minus 1.5, which is, you know, a very good small margin of error. So we can be confident in, 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 in what we're here. Okay. So now, obviously, because of the pandemic, you didn't go door to door. Did you all take this survey online? We did a, we did a hybrid. So it was, it was some phone survey, you know, that kind of that old school random digit dial survey. And then we also accessed an online panel to do it. So it was a hybrid. Um, that's sort of the way that the world is moving is we're moving away from those old school random digit dialing surveys to more of these hybrid models. Well, let's get into it. When you ask survey sure. participants about the biggest problems facing Metro Atlanta, I think I might know the answer to this, but let's start with the number one response. What'd you hear? Well, what would you think it would be during a raging pandemic? Uh, public health Absolutely. Was, one, was the number one issue. And, and that's one of those you know, surprise, not a surprise things, because, you know, again, we've been asking this every single year since 2013 and every single year, except that first year, transportation was the number one issue. Mm -hmm. And so just to see, you know, transportation actually, you know, drop to like fifth in the survey to see just, you know, so much change. Um, it just really proves that 2020 is a completely different and is this broken down by counties or just the overall, this was the number one issue? Or was this the number one issue in every county? This is the number one issue regionally. Mm -hmm. It's the number one issue in most counties. But, you know, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And that's where the beauty of this data set comes in. Because, you know, again, it's, it's, it's like peeling, peeling an onion. You keep peeling uh, parts of the onion and you keep finding new things. Um, so... In Clayton County, for example, economy was the number one issue. Mm. In Henry County, race relations was the number one issue. And so it just depends on jurisdiction. It depends on your age and it depends on your race and ethnicity, um, how um, you're perceiving life in Metro Atlanta. And we should let our listeners know that the top five were public health, crime, the economy, race relations, and then transportation, as you mentioned, rounding out at number five. Any surprise with crime and the economy being so high up? Well, let me, let me tackle the economy first. Now, when we first, again, back in 2013, uh, economy was the number one issue. And, and that made total sense, right? I and mean, we were still struggling with the Great Recession. And so economy is number one, transportation number two. Crime has always been sort of in the top three as, 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 a, as, a, as a regional issue. Uh, sometimes it spikes. Um, like, you know, this year it's pretty consistent with what it was last year. 
And then we don't really have a good answer for why crime is consistently in the top three. We do know looking at the hard data, you know, looking at uh, the crime statistics nationally and locally, that crime is actually going down over the past few years. Um, so why, you know, why crime is persistently in the, you know, top three, we, we don't have a good answer. I want to talk about something else because this survey focuses on employment, hunger, and I think housing. In terms of employment, you all found one quarter of respondents cited being laid off, terminated, or furloughed due to this pandemic. Not a surprise to you all. Not a surprise at all. And actually, the way that we asked that question, you could pick more than one. And so if you look at, you know, kind of the employment status change, um, being defined as being laid off, being mm -hmm. furloughed, having your hours cut or having your pay cut. If you add all those up together, we actually found that two thirds of respondents had some sort of employment impact due to mm -hmm. the pandemic. So that's two out of every three. And that's um, one of the more devastating statistics that we found in the survey. I mean, so two out of three. Mm -hmm. And then again, if you look jurisdiction by jurisdiction again, Let's look at Clayton County, where 85% of respondents, and these would be workers, so these are people who had jobs prior to the pandemic, 85% uh, experienced some sort of employment status change, which is, again, just devastating. Mike, do you all capture data that breaks this down by ethnicity, age group? Absolutely, and that's, and that's again, you know, Getting back to, to, to an earlier point, that's what makes this data set so rich is because you can really begin to understand uh, the differences in how people are experiencing life in Metro Atlanta based on age and based on race. And so one of the things, I mean, one of the most startling um, findings out of this is just how different the younger age cohorts are answering these questions compared to the older age cohorts. What do you mean? So for example, if you look at the younger age cohorts and you go back to that biggest problem question, um, the younger age cohorts are significantly more likely to say race relations is, is, is the number one issue. Mm -hmm. in and actually, if you look at it in, in, in all the questions, when we talk about hunger, when we talk about housing insecurity, when we talk about employment layoffs, consistently, every question we ask, we see that the younger age cohorts, and here we're meaning, you know, those 18 to 34, are experiencing the pandemic differently than older age cohorts. In other words, the, the, the impacts of the pandemic are, are being felt disproportionately on the younger age cohorts. But do we know within that subset, we say experiencing the pandemic differently, are you talking about in terms of employment, needing, needing. Yep. So if you look, hmm. yeah, I mean, again, it's consistent, um, you know, um, younger age cohorts are more likely to have gone to a food bank to get food. They are more likely to indicate struggles in paying next month's rent or mortgage. They are more likely to have experienced one of those employment shocks. Um, and it's just, and it goes on and on and on throughout the whole question. And what we're seeing is, you know, we're seeing a, we're seeing a, 
and it's not a it's not a clean dichotomy, but there's big differences just based on age um, of experiences here in Metro Atlanta. Mike, you all added a new question to this year's survey about discrimination. Why do you want to put that in there? Well, I mean, we're experiencing a economic downturn. Um, we're experiencing a public health pandemic, and we're also experiencing a racial injustice pandemic. This was the time to start understanding how our residents are feeling about the racial injustice that that, that, that everyone was seeing this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, we felt that you know it would it would be neglectful of us to not ask that question. So we did add that question for the very first time. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the results are, the results are startling and it's, and uh, they were startling, not only in the percentage of folks um, indicating that discrimination is a big problem, but it's also jurisdiction by jurisdiction and age and race cohorts, just how differently we're, we're, we're viewing um, racial discrimination. Mike, as we wrap up, what is next for you all at the Atlanta Regional Commission in terms of trying to get feedback and get a snapshot of what's taking place around the, the area here in Atlanta and, and the research that you all do? What's next? We're heading into 2021 in terms of the vaccine, or in terms of just the pandemic in general, when, when and how we're all going to come out of this. Might that change your next approach in getting the feedback you need from citizens? Yeah, I mean, we're I mean, we're trying to remain nimble. But one of the things that we want to make sure and, and, and we're partnering with anybody and everybody in the region to, 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 to think about this is we want to make sure that we emerge on the other side of this pandemic in a stronger place mm-hmm. um, than we were coming into it. And it goes back to that old adage, you know, never let a, a good crisis go to waste. Let's learn from this and let's, let's, let's learn about our vulnerabilities that we had going into this pandemic, the vulnerabilities that are being exposed and being exacerbated by this pandemic. Let's learn from that and make sure that, we're, that, 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 that we build a stronger system moving forward. Because if we just go right back to where we were before the pandemic, I, I, I think we've lost a big opportunity. And so, again, what we're going to be focusing on is conversation. We're going to be talking about racial discrimination. We're going to be talking about, you know, the wealth gap, you know, two questions that we asked in the survey. We're Mm -hmm. going to be talking about how different younger age cohorts are viewing life in Metro Atlanta versus the older age cohorts. Um, And again, the highest and best use of these data are the conversations. Well, and then I think we all can add that, also coming out of that is execution to help address the issues. <laughs> but you know, perhaps the, those who have the ability to do that will, will do that. Mike Carnathan is a senior manager of research and analytics for Atlanta Regional Commission. Thank you for taking the time as always. And thank you all for the work that you're continuing to do over at the ARC. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me, Rose.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. There have been many proposed solutions regarding easing the burden of student loan debt. From total forgiveness to forgiving up to $50,000 of student debt for borrowers with an earned income less than $250,000. Now, those are just two ideas. However, understand this. It is estimated 45 million borrowers collectively owe just about $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. Raise your hand if this is you because you're not alone. In fact, here in the United States, student loan debt is second only to mortgage debt for consumers, with making it higher than credit cards and auto loans. Now, if he keeps his promise and can get support from Congress, President-elect Joe Biden has a few ideas about student loan debt. Here's Biden last month answering a question about his student loan debt plans. It does figure in my plan. I've laid out in detail, for example, the... Uh, uh, the legislation passed by the Democratic House calls for immediate $10,000 forgiveness of student loans. It's holding people up. They're in real trouble. They're having to make choices between paying their student loan and paying their rent, those kinds of decisions. It should be done immediately. In addition to that, if you know, I think that everything from community college straight through to doubling Pell Grants to making sure that we have access, free education for anyone making under $125,000 for four years of college, and there is a program that exists now under the law that forgives student loans for being able to engage in engaging in public service. I'm, I'm going to institute that fundamental change in that so it's able to be available to everyone that, in fact, is engaged. It's not being very well managed right now. So I'm going to do all of those things. Now, while it remains to be seen what exactly a Biden administration will be able to do regarding student loan debt, here in Georgia, a new report breaks down this debt burden. From the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, the report titled How Student Debt Worsens Racial Inequality reveals debt burden varies widely by race, ethnicity, and a number of other metrics. Well, joining me now to talk more about the report is Jennifer Lee, Senior Policy Analyst with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Jennifer, glad to have you back on the program. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Rose. Let's begin with this because odds are you are not surprised by the following. According to educationdata.org, since 2003, the national total student loan debt balance, and this blew my mind, Jennifer, has grown by 602.5%. I imagine that is not lost on you. Yeah, we've seen a big increase in student debt across the country and in Georgia. And that increase has two main causes, one of which is not worrying and one of which is extremely troubling. <laughs> okay. um, one, one, the not worrying part of that is that more students are going to college. Mm -hmm. So that is a contr contribution. Um, you know, we, we want more students to go to school. Um, we don't want them to borrow excessively in order to do so, but that does contribute. Um, but the other factor is, as you've seen, that college has gotten very expensive for a lot of students forcing them to borrow. So mm -hmm. a lot of the um, responsibility for paying for college has shifted to students in a way that hasn't been the case in the past. And we're going to dig into that a lot deeper. And by your own reporting, you all were able to determine 57 percent of Georgia college graduates carry debt. And of those who do, the average debt burden is 28824 
And Jennifer, from what we discovered, that's only about 5000 less than the national average, which is just over $32,000. You mentioned the reasons for that, but in a state like Georgia, does this mean it's just going to continue? We're going to see that increase. Could we get to a point where the average debt will surpass or catch up even closer to that national average of $32,000? Well, I think if we don't do anything to make changes, that we're going to see that debt continue to increase. And one of the reasons, one of the big reasons, um, is that, as I mentioned, we've seen that cost shift to the students in a way that it hasn't before. And what I mean is that um, the state and other sources used to pick up a lot bigger portion of the cost. So Mm -hmm. for example, if it cost $100 to run a college, let's say, um, it used to be that the state would pay for about $75 of that and charge $25 for tuition. Mm -hmm. Now now colleges are charging $50 in tuition, that's doubled. And Mm -hmm. federal Pell Grants haven't caught up, wages haven't caught up for students who need to work and pay for living costs. So students are just expected to pay a lot more. So let's begin here as we dig into this by identifying based on race and sex, who's borrowing the most here in Georgia? I think I know the answer to this, but y'all are the experts here. So in Georgia, as in the rest of the country, black students are the most burdened by um, student debt. Um, They're significantly more likely to have to turn to loans to pay for higher education, and they're also borrowing larger amounts when they when they turn to loans. You all cite that women are the majority of college students in Georgia, making up, I think y'all came up with 59 percent of the total enrollment in public colleges and 63 percent of non profit private colleges and 72% of for-profit colleges, but despite the fact that they are more likely to graduate, women can expect to enter an economy where they are paid less on average. And now we get into another external issue when it comes to, okay, well, why are folks challenged with paying back their student loan debt? Here is an example of that. Yeah, that's a great example of how even if everyone had the same amount of student debt, they would experience that debt burden differently. So we know that women, um, even if they borrow similar amounts to men, when they graduate, there is significant wage gaps by gender. In addition, when you layer race and ethnicity on top of that, that are even larger, which means the same loan payment can represent a significantly heavier burden for women than for men, um, even in the same fields. And how many conversations have we had about that? If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Jennifer Lee. She's a senior policy analyst with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. And we're talking about a new report from the Institute, How Student Debt Worsens Racial Inequality. Let's get into something that you mentioned very early on, which was while we know it's clear student loan debt has been increasing over time, Jennifer, Your report is very clear. State and federal resources and funding have been declining. That's been a big part of this. So you're saying the funding has been decreasing in terms of resources for students, and that's why they're carrying and shouldering a heavy burden to pay for their own college here. That's correct. I mean, when we look at the way that our state is growing and the way that more and more students now want and need to go to college, it's clear that our state budget has not been able to keep up. Um, in terms of funding per student to keep that same high quality of education uh, for students that are going to college. So when we look at per student funding, um, you know, of course, there were big cuts in this most most recent budget. Mm -hmm. But when we look in the very long term, there has been a very long term 
disinvestment in higher education as our budget just structurally has not been able to keep up with college demand. What were you all able to reveal in terms of students who may have taken out these loans and then maybe didn't finish? What were the trends there and among which demographic? So that is one of the most troubling parts of of looking at the student loan data is that, um, you know, having student loan debt and a degree is can be challenging, but having debt and no degree can be devastating for Mm. students. Um, Students who have debt but um, drop out and are not able to finish have some of the worst outcomes when we're looking at their likelihood to default on the loan, which can itself have quite um, severe consequences um, financially. And so, um, and often um, many of the students who drop out and have that debt actually have very small amounts of debt. So because Mm. perhaps they were only able to go to college for one or two years, they actually didn't borrow that much, but that still that small amount of debt can really hurt their financial health because they don't have the degree that can help them in the job market. Mm. Your report also lists by institution some specific borrowing trends. For example, larger loans taken out at schools with more students from low-income families. And what stood out for me was at the top of this list, what we call our historically black colleges and universities, Savannah State, Fort Valley State, Albany State, and then Georgia Tech was in there, and Clayton State and Columbus State. Was that, was that surprising to you at all as an analyst when you saw that? I would say it wasn't surprising saying what we know about the demographics of borrowers, but it's still very striking when you Mm -hmm. see that list of students where the vast majority of students borrow and have the highest debt burdens that it is the HBCUs. Because what it means to me is that Black students in particular are risking more Mm -hmm. to achieve economic mobility. And we've seen again that these institutions in particular Um, in other studies have been extremely important for economic mobility in the state of Georgia, more than, you know, our um, predominantly white institutions Mm -hmm. or perhaps our flagship prestigious universities. The HBCUs have been so important Mm -hmm. for economic mobility in the state, but more and more Black students and other students who attend those institutions are risking more. Mm. And Jennifer, we have yet to mention how this pandemic will affect millions of borrowers and their ability to make student loan payments moving forward. Factor that in as well. And I know you all try to stay out of the politics of some of these issues, but I played that clip of President-elect Biden and some of his plans in his administration. Is that where the solution needs to begin from the federal level? I think a big thing, a big help that the federal government can provide, you know, I like to think of it in two different ways. What are we going to do for existing borrowers? And what are we going to do to prevent the student debt from happening for future students? For preventing student debt in the future, one of the things that the federal government can do is provide more funding um, directly to colleges and universities, Mm -hmm. and also in federal Pell Grant programs. you know, it's 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 better to never have taken a loan out at all and sure. than to try to come up with a program or some type of relief for students who have borrowed. That's primarily what the federal government can do going forward. And here at the state level, particularly as it relates to our public colleges, universities, I imagine we're talking about the state legislature being key here. 
The state legislature is key for sure because they control the purse, purse strings to the colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. And they also control the financial aid that is given out in Georgia. You mentioned the Hope Scholarship before. Um, Georgia is one of only two states who does not provide need-based financial mm -hmm. aid to their students in Georgia. So that um, is a key policy lever, lever that Georgia could use. Um, and Georgia is also actually the only state that has its own um, state loan program um, that is funded in the way that it is. And so it, it's, it's unique in, in a couple of different ways, both with HOPE and how we manage our own state loan program. Well, Jennifer, we just mentioned that R word again, the recession, but depending on whom you ask, some say we are already in a recession because of the pandemic or we're heading into one. What is your hope that policymakers make sure they're going to address this issue when we talk about student loan debt moving forward? I would hope that policymakers really see colleges and universities as a place that can help people, individuals, families, and the state actually recover from the recession. Um, what we've seen in the past and what we're seeing now at, in um, the University System of Georgia is that when the economy goes down, more students enroll <laughs> because um, they are investing in themselves and their skills for the long term. And perhaps mm -hmm. they've lost jobs and know that they need to shore up their skills. So I hope that policymakers really see our higher education system as the workforce development system it is and a place that needs to be invested in to help people find work um, and to um, get jobs uh, in a very difficult economic environment. As we wrap up, and we know that obviously maybe policymakers and state lawmakers should read this report, who else should take note of this report? Well, I think that um, in, in addition to policymakers, um, folks in the business community could really benefit from thinking about uh, student debt issues. As we said, there are a lot there are a lot of places that businesses can plug in from offering you know paid internship opportunities and work-based learning opportunities to students, contributing to their own scholarship funds, but also to help people be able to pay back their loans and not contribute to the disparities that we see, just making sure that they're having diverse hiring pools, mm -hmm. fair hiring practices. Um, all of that can help. You know, one of the reasons, again, that we've seen that student debt burden affects women and racial and ethnic minorities differently is because of discrimination in the workplace. So mm -hmm. that, is, again, is something that businesses can look at when they're thinking about student debt. It's all tied together. Jennifer Lee is with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, and the report is How Student Debt Worsens Racial Inequality. We will have a link to Jennifer's report on our website. Jennifer, compelling information. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Kanavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.